Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today uh, is the third, uh, third week, the third day in our series, sermon series on those um, five core essential teachings of what later became known as the Protestant Reformation. Um, and it has to do with how we are saved by God. We are saved first by the grace of God. God's free and good pleasure motivates him to want to save us, and it motivates him to take action. That grace is received through faith alone, um, and it is, it is faith, and it is not by our own works. And the object of that faith is what we will consider today, and that object of the faith is in Christ alone, in Christ alone, from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Um, I've mentioned this before. Uh, a number of years ago, I had worked at Indiana University in Bloomington, and it was there at Indiana University um, during that period of time that I began seriously considering the claims of Christianity. Um, now, something that is unfortunately characteristic of me is that whenever I go to make a decision or I go to consider things, I consider it way, uh, way too much for way too long, and you can imagine considering uh, the nature of eternity and the nature of who I am and the big questions and meanings of life, um, it may take a while to come to those conclusions. And so, um, and so that, was, that was a period of time in my life where I was, I was evaluating. I was evaluating what, who am I and where's their meaning in this world and what's wrong with the world and, and how do I contribute to the world and how do I contribute to what's wrong and how do I contribute to what's right and so on and so on. And all these things I would... I would study and I would reflect on and I would examine the, Christ, the claims of Christianity in light of other religions and other self-help um, approaches and other philosophies of the day. And at one point in time, now I worked third shift a lot, so that may have influenced some of these kind of overly analytical existential kind of um, musings that I would engage in. But um, at one point in time, what I had concluded that what was wrong with the world was the world was a very violent place. And so as a result, um, what, I, what do I need to do to fix the problem? Well, what I need to do to fix the problem is to not contribute to the violence. So I need to stop having evil thoughts, stop having violent thoughts. And so I, I attempted, I kind of made this personal resolution that I'm going to, con to stop contributing to this evil and hatefulness that I see in the world. I'm not gonna have evil thoughts it didn't last very long. Um, it actually, it, I had tried this a, a few different times. This one time in particular when I concluded that violence was what was wrong with the world uh, and that I wasn't going to contribute to it, I, I remember whenever I realized I maybe they contributed to it, I was, it, was, it was our lunch break and I was speaking with this gentleman named John. And John, I remember, was, um, was a was, it kind of had like dark, deep red hair and he, um, he was just this kind of fiery personality of a guy and he had on this sweatshirt that had this like Japanese bonsai tree. And so I asked him, I'm like, you know, why, why are you wearing this shirt? And he was like, well, you know, because I'm interested in martial arts. And so we, we spent time talking about martial arts and essentially how to inflict bodily damage on people through the use of your fists, knees, and elbows and whatnot. And after that, I was like, oh my gosh, did I just contribute to this culture of violence, okay? So what did I do? I started over again, okay? Because I, because I messed up and now I'm gonna be better. 
And so I'm not going to have any evil or hateful thoughts. I'm not going to contribute to violence in any way whatsoever. And what I concluded was, I'm going to start internally and then move out from there. And so I didn't have any evil thoughts for about a whole three days. Somebody said, wow, that was good, wasn't it? That was, it was real good. The problem of it is, is I messed up again. In fact, that gentleman, John, I remember him talking to me after that first conversation. He said, you know, Travis, I was a little nervous when, you, when I first met you and when I first started talking to you. And I was like, how come? And he said, you know, he said, whenever you wanted to talk to me about my sweatshirt and you were talking about martial arts, he said, I had always concluded at some point in time because of the way you were, that you were this like crazy whiskey drinking, cocaine snorting, violent dude, and I might have to fight you one day. <laughs> and and I, I, I wasn't as bothered about my promotion of the violent culture as much as I was like, where does he get like whiskey drinking and cocaine snorting from? Like, it didn't necessarily, it doesn't characterize my life then or now for the, just for clarification's sake. Like, I would say that I prefer water over whiskey and, and Kleenexes over cocaine, you know? Like, that's kind of, kind of what characterized me then and now. But, but even though I was trying to internally be a good person and be peaceful, even my very presence was communicating something else. I couldn't just be a better person, even if I tried mentally, even if I was trying to avoid saying hateful or evil things. My very presence was communicating something else. There was something fundamentally wrong with me to where being a better person wasn't going to work. What is wrong with the world and how do we fix it? Is it what's wrong with us is that we're just not good enough? And the way we fix the not good enough is that we try really hard? Is that, is that what we need? to try really hard. Well, I had tried that and it didn't work. There is something that's fundamentally broken on the inside of me as well as on the inside of every person. There is this natural inclination that people have as they are born into the world to sin, to, to, to go their own way, to place themselves at the center and the most important place in the universe. And what we need is not to try to be a better person. What we need is to be a new person. We need to become a new person. And the question is, is how is that possible? Is it just through our own personal ingenuity? Is it just through mental tricks? Is it just through practice? How is that possible? How do you become a new person? Well, according to the scriptures, it is possible to become a new person, but that, that ability, that power is not found within you. It's found outside of you, and it's found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. In that time period that later became known as the Protestant Reformation, and we as a church, our family history, our family heritage, our genealogy of faith, is tied to the Protestant Reformation. The question, was, the question arose is, is what's wrong with the world and, and how is it fixed? And Catholics and Protestants were in agreement that what was wrong with the world is that it is summarized by a word we call sin. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. And that is what's fundamentally wrong with all of us. And Protestants and Catholics were in agreement that what the solution to that problem is the person Jesus Christ. And so now the question is, is 
Who is Jesus Christ and what does he do for this sinful and broken humanity? And in the Protestant, in the Catholic understanding was that Jesus stands and he is available to infuse you with his grace. He is available to pour, to inject, to vaccinate you, uh, vaccinate you in such a way that he will provide you some of his grace when you perform certain rituals such as baptism, confirmation, maybe even marriage, last rites, and so on. If you receive those, those rites, those um, sacraments, those actions, you will receive a measure of grace and goodness that will enable you to do better in the future. And according to the scriptures and what the later the Protestants said and as what we believe is that Jesus is not merely present to infuse you with his grace, but Jesus is, is present and ready to save you, to rescue and make you an entirely new person. And the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 teaches that, that Christians have become new people through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's with all these things in mind it's my prayer that you hear this, that justification in Christ says Jesus is the only way to become a new person. Jesus Christ is the only way to become a new person. Now, you might want to know how is it possible that Jesus is the only way to become a new person? Well, there are three ways that I believe that, that Jesus is the only way to make someone a new person. First, he relieves the guilt of your past. Jesus will make you a new person that he relieves the guilt of your past. Second, Jesus will make you a new person and that he will remove the fears of your present. And then third, Jesus will make you a new person because he will heal you of your shame in the future. First, he relieves the guilt of your past. And so the apostle Paul in Romans in the book of Romans is asking the question, essentially what is wrong with the world and, and what is the solution? If you're not a Christian, I would ask you this, like what do you believe is wrong with the world? It's one of the most important questions that you can, you can answer and you can consider and I hope that you'll consider it. What do you believe is wrong with the world? And then the second question that I think is of utmost importance, if you are a Christian or you're not a Christian is, is what is the solution? How is it fixed? What will right the wrongs that you see? The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans spends the first three chapters saying what's wrong with the world. And I already mentioned it earlier. What's wrong with the world is the world is characterized by sin. Sin is anything you think, say, or do that displeases God. Having evil thoughts, thinking you're better than someone else, telling lies, stealing, dishonoring your parents, dishonoring a coworker, and so on. And that this is what is wrong with everybody because everybody sins. And as a result, the judgment of God is upon this world. What evidence do I have that the judgment of God is upon this world? Well, one, the scriptures testify to it, but also right outside this building is a cemetery. There's an ongoing reminder that the judgment of God is, is on this world because it says in, in scripture that that sin warrants a penalty. And it says in Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. The penalty, the price, 
that has been um, enacted on humanity because of sin is death. So the problem we have is that we have a sin problem, we have a judgment problem, and we have a problem um, ultimately with death. And so what will be done about it? What is the solution? And in the scriptures, the, the solution is that God will send Jesus Christ. God will send Jesus Christ and he will come into this world and he will, he will live a life, but Paul will focus specifically on his death in Romans chapter six, verse 10. He says this, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. So the solution that God has to this problem of sin and judgment and death is to send his own very son to die. Did you notice there that he dies once to sin? Have you ever had to do something over again because you didn't get it right the first time? Um, I had to do many things over again. That's why they, they create erasers on pencils. I can remember I would have to redo the math problem over and over again and hear my parents say something like, well, if you'd done it right the first time, you wouldn't have to do it again. Um, if you couldn't tell all the trauma that I feel when I see a, a pencil eraser. Have you ever had to do something over again because it didn't take the first time? Well, not Jesus. He died once and for all. He died to sin. He dies because sin comes with it a penalty, and that penalty is death. And so God takes the very thing that has been used to penalize us and he, and he flips it. He uses it in the person of Jesus Christ to undo what our problem is, and that is sin. Now, I was speaking with a man who was not a Christian, and he said to me once, he said, you know, his daughter was baptized, and he had said that, you know, you Christians make a big deal about the death of Jesus. And though I believe it's good, I think that only applies to him. Like, how does that apply to anybody else other than him? Now, this man was, was from Evansville. So on the western side of the world. And I spoke to another man on a different occasion, a non-Christian, a Muslim man from the other side of the world in the Middle East. One guy from the Midwest, one guy from the Middle East. And that man said to me, the same problem is he just said, how can someone else die for the sins of another? Well, it's a legitimate question, and Paul addresses it. And in Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, he says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, for we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. He says that we've been united to Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? To be united to Jesus Christ means essentially to belong to him, to, for Jesus Christ to be mine and for me to be his. And so now everything that is true of Jesus is true of me. And this is the way Paul views it. He views that since we belong to Jesus Christ, we've been united to him. Sometimes the New Testament will say we are in Christ. Because we belong to Jesus Christ, his death to sin has now, now been applied to me. It's now mine. Everything that is true of him, everything that he has done is now mine because I belong to him by faith through the grace of God found in the Holy Spirit. 
Um, a few years ago now, my wife and I got married. And so in this moment, in this act, you think about it, um, <laughs> she got all my debts. I had a car payment. She didn't have a car payment until she married me, okay? And then she, I should say she didn't have a truck payment, okay? She didn't have a truck payment until she married me. And then we have a truck payment. Um, I didn't have a car payment until I married her, and then we had a car payment. Um, so there's all the debts that we had. We brought, obviously brought a lot of debts into our marriage. Um, we did have, and this, and it's the silliest thing, I remember we were talking about this, we had, our church gave us a love offering um, as their gift to us, and they gave us, it was the equivalent of three months rent, okay? The, the, the whole sum of my net worth was like $1,500. I thought I was rich. I remember my parents were a little concerned with my fiscal irresponsibility. And I was like, hey, we're fine. We've got like three months rent in the bank. And I remember my parents were like, do you have enough money to eat is the other question we have. And I'm like, what difference does that make? You know what I mean? Like, we're fine. Well, you see, what happened was, is whenever we came together, when we were united in marriage, all, all of my savings, a whole $1,500 was now our savings. And, and all our debts were together. And in a much grander way, this is what takes place when we come to believe in Jesus. When we come to believe in Jesus, we receive all of his goodness. We receive all of his goodness because that's all that he's contributed to the relationship is goodness, righteousness, perfection, and obedience. And he at the cross receives all our badness. He receives all our all our sin, all our shame, all our debts were placed on him. Why? Because now we have been united to him by faith through the Holy Spirit because of the grace of God. So I want to ask you, like, what is it that occupies your mind? What is it that occupies your memories? What are the memories that continue to go through? What is the, the thing, the event, the action from your past that you try to distance yourself from? What's the, what's the one thing you have done that you really hope nobody finds out about? The reality is, Christian, all your past sins are actually under the blood of Jesus. And God doesn't hold a grudge against you. He placed all of your sins on Jesus, and whenever you belong to him by faith, all of your past has been done away with. You are free. And so we apply this by resting, by resting in the goodness and the grace of God. We apply this by, by taking it easy, so to speak. Why? Because God loves us and he doesn't hold a grudge against us because Jesus Christ relieved the guilt of our past. Second, Jesus removes our fears in the present. So the Apostle Paul will, will speak about the, the event, essentially, that is Jesus Christ. You have to understand the way the scriptures understand history is that Jesus Christ is the main event. Jesus Christ is the main event in history. And so what they'll do is they will move in and out from discussions about his, maybe his birth, uh, his life his death, as well as his resurrection. And they'll move very seamlessly because the way they view is, it is, is they view that all of, all of Jesus's life is an event 
And that event is the most important event in all of history. And so you'll see here that he will discuss the death of Jesus Christ, but then he'll move to the resurrection. And what he says is, he says the resurrection has benefits for us today. Look here with me at what he says in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. For do you not know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may, we too may live a new life. Do you see how he was talking about that we were united with Christ? We belong to him is the way I would translate that. And this takes place essentially at our baptism. Now, in, in Paul's day, they would speak about baptism and faith as essentially you know, one event, you can look in the New Testament and you, you see that, that it is so closely linked and joined. And, and baptism is the initiation, right? It is the public display of that inward faith that we have where we testify publicly before other people that Jesus is Lord and I belong to him. And he says that we were buried with Christ in baptism, but then did you see that we were raised as well? His resurrection does what? It, it raises us here, the NIV translates it, to live a new life. Now, if you're old school, it, <clears throat> the translation was that you were raised to what? To walk in the newness of life. And just for the record, I prefer the old school translation. You were raised to walk in a new life. What happens when a person becomes a Christian is something changes in them. Something fundamentally changes in them that their thoughts begin changing, their words begin changing, their actions begin changing. I knew about myself, whenever, before I was a Christian, I told a lot of lies about a lot of things. I told so many lies that I would have to tell lies in an effort to, to keep people from finding out about other lies. And one of the clearest evidences for me whenever I was first a Christian was that I, I, I stopped telling other people lies. I was beginning to walk in a new life because the reality is, is Jesus Christ does something for every Christian right here and right now. His resurrection breaks the power of sin over their life. Sin has a grip on people. It grips people in such a way that people cannot not sin who were not Christians. You know, I told you about me trying to be a good person way back when. And I remember in a moment of despair before I was a Christian, I was like, I cannot not sin. I cannot not do bad. But after I became a Christian, if nothing else, I started telling people the truth. And, and that was evidence that the power of sin was broken on my life. Or to put it in the words of Jesus, Jesus will say this about, about people. He'll say, everyone who sins is a servant of sin. But then he says, if the Son has set you free, what? You are free indeed. The spell has been broken. Jesus Christ's resurrection breaks the power of sin over people's lives right now. So for you, Christian, you don't have to be the way you once were. I would say if you've been a Christian for very long, you would acknowledge that things are different. Maybe your desires are different. Maybe in the course of time, your friends are different. Because why? Well, because you and your friends before you were a Christian, you, it was characterized by a certain way of living. But now that just, it just doesn't taste the same. It just doesn't experience the same way. And so things have happened and there's been distance. 
Why? Well, because Jesus has raised you to live a new life. He's raised you to walk in the newness of life. Now, I, I didn't tell people a lot of lies after I become a Christian. I have, okay, a full disclosure if I need to disclose that, but uh, I just did, so whatever. But, but with, regards to, um, with regards to something that I've learned about myself is that I, I've, I've, I've told a lot of lies to myself. I've convinced myself of a lot of things that aren't actually true about myself. Now, years ago, rather quickly, there was not as much lying to other people, but years afterwards, there's still been kind of this self-deception that I engage in, where I convince myself that, that everything's okay, that I'm okay, that I'm not as bad as maybe I am. So, for the last few years, I've had a rough period of time in my life, and you know what? I've articulated that. I've complained about it. I've moaned about it. Now, here's the problem whenever I complain. It says this in Scripture, that, that the Lord is in heaven and he does as he pleases. That's a present tense word, meaning everything that God does in my life, he's happy with it. But I, whenever I complain about God, I'm not happy about it. And so I'm saying to God, you don't know what you're talking about. Now, I would say that I struggled with complaining. I struggled with it. It is possible to struggle with sin. Christians do struggle with sin. I am not saying that Christians don't struggle with sin. Again, Christians struggle with sin. I was not struggling with my complaining, okay? I was struggling with looking good and, and in using socially appropriate words in the in the context of other Christians. Uh, I, I was perfectly fine with complaining. I frankly think that my life has been ordered in a way that isn't the best way that could have been. And if God were to ask my opinion, I would have lived my life a different way over the last three years, if I am being honest. So there was no struggle. I was kind of cool with complaining. We can apply this first. And one of the things I've had to do is apply it by first being honest. I, it's only been in the last few weeks that I've said to God, I, I have been so filled with complaining and moaning and questioning of your plans in my life. And you're gonna have to make me different. We can, we can apply the fact that we now have a new life in just by being honest to God and saying, this is where I'm at, but I don't wanna stay there. I don't wanna be where I've, where I've been and I don't re wanna respond to my life the way that I have. But that first requires some honesty in saying to God, here's where I've been. Please give me the want to, to be different and not trying to church it up. We also can apply it in the way that we view other Christians. Like maybe you have a, maybe you have a child, a son or a daughter who, who was raised in the church and you raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, but they've, they've moved on. Or, they, or, they, or they're, not, they're not living their life in correspondence with a confession they made that Jesus is Lord. And maybe you're so afraid that they're going to stay in that place. And the reality is, the reality is, is everyone who belongs to Jesus Christ, the power of sin is broken in their life. And they may have periods, long periods of time where they engage in sin. They may have long periods of time where the temptations of this world overtake them. But the reality is, is nobody has to 
Nobody has to stay the same way that they once were. You might, have a, you might have a spouse who's always looking at pornography and maybe they've been doing it for the last five years, but the reality is, is, is there is hope that somebody can change even in this life. Jesus' resurrection breaks that despair, that message that sin gives to us that says they'll never be different. That's not true. Jesus, Jesus raised from the dead. Why? So that we might walk in the newness of life. So that we don't have to be afraid of our present. And then third, he heals us of our shame in the future. Third, he heals us of our shame in the future. So as the apostle will talk about the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that we belong to him, he speaks about past realities, that there is no more, there's no more guilt, there's no more penalty from the things that we have done. And he speaks about present realities, that we now have a new life that we walk in, one that is characterized. It's characterized in such a way that Paul will say in this passage that we are now, we're not slaves to sin, we're slaves to righteousness. But then he also speaks about the future. And look here with me. In Romans chapter 6, verse 8, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died once to sin for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. There's something that's true about Jesus Christ right now. And that is, he is alive in the body that he was once crucified in, in the presence of God. And he will always be alive. He's a resurrected savior and king. And because when a person believes in him, whatever's true about him becomes true about them. Not, not always immediately. And the Christian has hope. The Christian has hope that, that we too will be resurrected. And he'll remove, he'll remove the shame that comes along with sin. Have you ever sinned and then you just, you just felt so embarrassed about it? Maybe you've sinned in front of another person. And, and there's just this the desire to hide, to not be seen. To, the desire to hide is, is that is that is that byproduct of sin. It's called shame. But have you, ever, have you ever been to a funeral and have you ever noticed how much shame is spoken of at funerals? People say things like this. It's good to see you, but I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. What are they doing? They're apologizing. They're apologizing for the moment. Why? Because there's something about death that carries with it shame. They say things like this. Um, you know, I, I, I'm really sorry. I, I, I feel like we should get together more often. I'm sorry that it's, that it's only these kind of events that bring us together. There's all this apology, but it's a communal struggle. And the reality is, is the Christian has something 
The Christian has something that's miraculous that's in store for them because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have something miraculous that's waiting on us. And that is our own resurrection. That is the day when Jesus Christ, when, when death will be transformed from this, from this shameful final event, that death will be transformed into a doorway, into a walkway, into a tunnel that we will pass through in, in order to be in the presence of God forever. Jesus Christ, he will deal with all our shame and death in the future. Why? Because he has been raised from the dead and we belong to him. So on that day, there'll be no more shame. We'll be known as we are. And we can, we can say with the songwriter, oh, that day when free from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. And then clothed in blood-washed linens, because he died for us, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. That's true for you as a Christian, because Jesus Christ is here to make you new. We, we encounter that in the person of Jesus in the word, but also in the Lord's Supper. You see, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body broken for you, for your past, for your present, and even for your future. In the same way, he took a cup of wine. He says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of it, do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns, until he returns to make us completely new forever. If you are a Christian, we invite you to come forward. After I get done praying and the musicians begin playing, there'll be stations throughout the auditorium. Come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience permits. The wine will be marked with a piece of twine. And there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right if those will serve you. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you please do not partake in this um, part of the service, but I, I pray that you've heard God speak to you. And I pray that you will take Jesus by faith and that you will belong to him. And we can prepare you for communion in the weeks to come. Let's pray together.